So over the past four weeks, we have been uh, looking at the unexpected parts of Christmas, and yet uh, here we are in week five, and uh, the very same unexpected mindset that has been with us the last four weeks is, is still going to be seen here in uh, the Gospel of Luke in chapter two. So there's this connection, really, of where uh, there's this unexpected child, and he continues to do the unexpected. And so that's what we're going to work with, and that's why we're using that video, in case anybody asks. It was not planned this morning, but now it is. So, uh, Luke 2, 39 through 52 is where we're at this morning, and we're going to spend uh, the bulk of our time looking at verses uh, 41 onwards. And so, uh, these verses are remarkable for uh, a number of reasons, but there's one in particular that makes it kind of stand out from anywhere else, and it's because it is the only story in Scripture where we see Jesus uh, not a baby or not an adult. Like, this is that one story that is recorded of Jesus as a preteen, teenager, uh, whatever you want to call it. And so, uh, and as we go through the Gospel of Luke, like next week, we're already into the story of John the Baptist and his ministry. We're already onto the ministry of Jesus, the starting moment of his earthly ministry. So it makes us ask the question, what is it then about uh, these particular moments that Luke felt compelled to put in his gospel? Now we know that there are several moments of Jesus' life that are not accounted for. So what is it about this moment that Luke felt the need to include? Now keep in mind, Luke is probably the greatest historian to ever walk the earth. Luke knew his stuff. He made sure that he got his information correctly. And as we see at the beginning of Luke and at the beginning of the book of Acts, he uh, had sources. So there's no reason to think that, that he had no idea of what Jesus did between the ages of 1 and 11, or 1 and 12. But this is the moment that he decides to record. So why does he do that? Why does he not mention anything else? Now, I don't like arguing from silence, and so I don't really want to speculate, but what I do know is that the Holy Spirit never includes anything in Scripture that isn't important. He never adds anything in that's just like, hey, uh, let's just throw a moment out there so that uh, we, we can kind of say, well, hey, look, we, we covered these years. No, there's a purpose behind uh, what is in this moment of the gospel. And I think that one of the main reasons that Luke does decide to include this is because it talks about the human and divine nature of Christ. You see both happening in this moment. But before we get to that even... Uh, I want us to look at some of the historical background of what is going on as Mary and Joseph and Jesus find themselves here in Luke chapter 2. So let's go ahead and read uh, verses 39 through 52. Luke writes, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? 
Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So let's, uh, let's hop in our DeLoreans or our TARDISes or our Bill and Ted phone booths. And let's go back to first century Jerusalem. All right, history lesson to start off the year. Um, as a dad, and I think pretty much every dad in here will relate, uh, I love history. And most dads, we only have like four things that we really love. It's like cars, history, food, and just tinkering. And I got the history bug. So I, I love looking into uh, the history of what's going on here. So when we look back uh, to Luke 2, verses 22 through 38, which Wayne did last week, we see Mary and Joseph, they take an infant Jesus uh, to Jerusalem, to the temple, so that he could be presented to the Lord. And so uh, this is a, a, a thing that every firstborn Jewish male was to, to have done for them in their lives, according to Exodus 13. So it's important for us to mention that up to this moment, Mary and Joseph, if there is a parenting class, they're doing everything right. Like they're passing all the, the, the A's, they're getting the A's, they're, they're getting the check marks, gold stars, whatever it is. Um, they're doing it. They're doing things very well. So in verse 39, Luke says that they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord. And then they go home and Jesus grew and became strong, wise, and had the favor of God upon him. Everything that the law said to do, Mary and Joseph are seeing to it that it is done. So Jesus continues to grow. They wanted to raise this child as perfectly as they could, and hopefully every parent will, will want to do the same thing for their own kid. And so what we see when we get to verse 41 is that that same desire continues. There is still a desire to do everything well according to the law. And so uh, they, they travel to Jerusalem year after year for Passover. So Luke mentions in verse 41 that Jesus is how old? How old is Jesus at this point? He's 12. He's 12. Um, and so uh, this is important because what would happen for a Jewish boy when they turn 13? What would they celebrate? Their bar mitzvah. And so if you don't know what a bar mitzvah is, it is basically uh, the, the moment when a Jewish boy would become a man, so to speak. It would be that, that moment where he becomes accountable for his actions, be responsible and so uh, what does all that have to do with Jesus being 12? Well, uh, traditionally, I didn't know this until I heard R.C. Sproul talk about it. Um, traditionally, uh, when the year before a Jewish boy would turn 13, uh, the parents of the child would take their 12-year-old son to Jerusalem. And they would show them around the city. They would show them the temples. They would meet some of the teachers of the law. And so think of like our modern version of going on college visits. Like, I remember my, my college visit, and I would go, and I would hopefully be inspired to uh, take my studies seriously, to do things well in the next year as I'm, as I'm training to do uh, the next level of responsibility that I was about to get. And so this is really probably why uh, Jesus is going through Jerusalem with Mary and Joseph. Obviously, if there's like a one-year-old, they're going to take the kid with them too, but this is a very specific reason why uh, Luke is deciding to tell us that Jesus was there at 12. To say, hey, he, there's a reason behind all this. This isn't accidental. There's a purpose before the reason of why he's there. And so the feast ends, and it comes time for the family to go home, but they don't realize that Jesus is in Jerusalem. So uh, you might wonder how both parents, who have been doing everything so well up to this point, could misplace their firstborn 
son. Um, traditionally, larger extended families would travel together. Also, if you're a parent, probably ain't that hard. You, you probably forgot a kid or two. Um, traditionally, parents would, or people would travel in large caravans. So you would have uh, grandma, grandpa, mom, dad, third, fourth, fifth cousins all traveling together because families live basically in the same general area. Plus, you know, if you have neighbors that aren't directly related, you probably still travel with them too. So there's a huge caravan of people traveling together. Now, normally the way that families would travel is that they would place women and the younger children in the front. And then they would put the men and the older children in the back. And so uh, who knows exactly how many people are, are traveling together at this point, but we know it's a large family, large enough for someone to get lost in the herd. And so uh, keep in mind, there's probably a lot of other people leaving Jerusalem at this time. So it kind of starts to become easier to see why Jesus get, might get lost in the herd, but then there's something else that would probably lead to the confusion. How old is Jesus again? He's 12. That's, the, that's like the one trivia question. Is like, how old is Jesus at this point? He's right on the precipice of manhood. He's right there. He, he, he's there. He's going to see what is going to happen next year when he becomes a man at 13. And so he's not quite an adult, so Joseph is probably assuming that Jesus is traveling with Mary, the women, and the other children, while Mary is probably assuming that Jesus is traveling with the men. Because remember, he is going to Jerusalem to see uh, the sites and to prepare for that bar mitzvah. Mary thinks Joseph has him. Joseph thinks Mary has him. It's a whole big thing. And then uh, eventually they go on for about a day. And you get to that, that good old-fashioned, where's Jesus? I thought he was with you. I thought he was with you. And they probably bicker about it a little bit. And it's probably the man's fault, because it usually is. And then, uh, earning my brownie points with my wife. Um, so they turn around. And it says, after three days, they find him in the temple, sitting with the teachers. So let's look at verse 48 again. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And so uh, was Jesus in the wrong here? Because it sounds like Mary is saying that Jesus disobeyed his parents, and we know from the Bible that uh, Christ lived his entire life without sin. We know that disobeying or dishonoring your parents was a pretty big deal. It was in the top ten, to be honest, of the commandments, so you know it's a pretty big deal. But Jesus, the Bible says, did not sin. So Jesus replies, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? Christ did not sin because he ultimately holds to that which is the highest priority. So what we mean by this is that we just spent the first two chapters of Luke talking about how Jesus is not an ordinary child. He's not an ordinary child. And so Mary knows this better than anyone, that Jesus was not to be like any other children. That's why, I, I'll be honest, I do not like the Mary Did You Know song. Because, yeah, angels told her she knew. There's like two chapters in the Bible of, yeah, she knows that this is no ordinary child. Things are going to be different. So J.C. Ryle, he says of Jesus' reply that it was meant to remind his mother that he was no common person and had come into the world to do no common work. Jesus knew that he had a father in heaven and that his heavenly father's work demanded his first attention. So what was it that Christ was doing as he sat at the feet of the teachers? What was he doing? He was ultimately following the will of his father. He was going, at, he was attending to that which was most important. 
It was the will of God the Father that Christ the Son would grow in wisdom and in favor with God and man. So Mary's mindset is entirely off at this moment. She's entirely going after wrong things. She's thinking predominantly about her own will, her own desires, seemingly having forgotten exactly what Simeon said at the temple just years earlier. Simeon said, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Jesus is no ordinary child, and he knew from a young age that the Father's work demands attention. And to be honest, like, I wish my teenagers and, and YC knew that. I wish they had the same drive to go after the will of the Father as Jesus did. I wish we as full-grown adults would, would, would do this. The work of God must be our highest priority. See, if we neglect the work of our Heavenly Father for the preferences of ourselves and our biological parents, we're acting contrary to God's call for our lives. I remember uh, going through a year and a half of college, and that was when I felt the call into ministry. And I told everybody else that I was going into the ministry, and the last people I told were my parents. Because in my mind, I was worried about, hey, Mom and Dad, I just wasted a year and a half of your money learning something that I'm never going to use again. I still have not used the Pythagorean theorem, and I've been out of college for a while. And so I called my dad, and I said, here's what I feel like the Lord wants me to do. And he gave me the good answer of, if that is what God has called you to, I'm not, not going to get in the way of that. See, parents, we cannot get in the way of what God has called our children to. If you're acting contrary to God's will for the, will of, or for the life of your child, then you need to get out of the way to let God do what he will have done in the life of your child. We cannot neglect the call of God for our lives. So are we able to say in our life as we enter into this new year that God's will and work are our highest priorities or are God's priorities your priorities? Can we say with Augustine uh, that thou has made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you? You see, we have been created by God and for God so that we, that we might pursue the will of God. So at the age of 12, Jesus has already recognized that he must do the will of his heavenly Father. He must serve him first, and hopefully we will be able to say the same things. So the one thing that I mentioned earlier about this passage of Scripture is that we really see the divine and human nature of Christ. And if you are in my Sunday school class, we get to talk about this a whole lot more next Sunday. So come for that. Uh, Jesus Christ is one person with two natures. Jesus is fully human, and he is also fully divine. Now, uh, we see this reality as Jesus interacts with the teachers in the temple. Luke records that the teachers were amazed at Christ's understanding and the answers that he gave. So how is it that Jesus is able to amaze these teachers of the law? These are people who knew their stuff. Remember, Jesus' problems with the Pharisees wasn't that they didn't read the Bible. It wasn't that they did not know what it said. This problem was that they were not applying it and they were twisting it. What is it that caught their attention and blew their minds? Well, we could take the very cheap answer and say that Jesus is divine. He's God at the age of 12, just as he's always been God for all eternity. And we know that God is all-knowing and therefore Christ is all-knowing. But here's the thing, by arguing in that way, we're saying that not only is Christ's divine nature all-knowing, we're also arguing that his human nature is all-knowing. And you see, this is, uh, this, this, the thing is, the two natures of Jesus should be and are distinguishable. They're distinguishable. And so, uh, look at it in this way. God does not have a physical body. How come? Well, because God's spirit. 
right? That's what it says in the Bible. It says God is spirit. God doesn't have physical arms, physical legs, physical hair, fingers, etc. Um, so when Jesus was thirsty, as we see in like John chapter 4, when Jesus was thirsty, what was thirsty? His human, his human nature or his divine nature? Well, it's, yeah, it's human. Because God never thirsts, God never hungers. And so that makes sense for something like uh, hunger and thirst, but what about when it comes to things about knowledge? Remember what verse 52 says. It says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So if 12-year-old Jesus is all-knowing, how does verse 52 make sense? Now, I'm not saying anything crazy yet. Don't take me outside and kill me. We're getting there. The idea of Christ growing in knowledge or not knowing something, kind of like in the Gospel of Mark when, the, when his followers ask him, Jesus, when's your second coming? And he says, I don't know. Uh, that's the, the Cliff Notes version of it, or Spark Notes version of it. Um, that's something that, grew, that, that drove Thomas Aquinas, one of the greatest theologians of the Middle, middle Ages, absolutely bonkers. Because in Aquinas' mind, he thought, hey, uh, that's impossible. Jesus had to have known because God knows all. And you see, what he was arguing then and believed was that if Jesus' divine nature knew everything, then his human nature must also share in that. So we are getting a lot of theology very early into this year, right? Yes, we are. It'll all make sense. We'll get there when we get there. In his own human nature, Christ's knowledge was limited, just as all of mankind's knowledge is limited. Now, there are certainly numerous times in the Bible where Jesus knows things that is impossible for man to know. That is absolutely impossible for him to know. But that knowledge did not spring out of his own human knowledge. Instead, it's revealed only because his divine nature reveals it to him. Does that make sense? So like in the Old Testament, think about the prophets. How did the prophets bring forth the words of God? If they're good prophets and actually following the will of the Lord, they're not just like making it up on the fly. Instead, the Spirit reveals it to them. God the Father reveals it to them. And so they only knew what to say because God told them. Throughout Christ's life, his heavenly Father or his divine nature would reveal things to him as was necessary. So it's entirely possible that this is what's happening as Jesus was speaking with the teachers in the temple. But I think there might be one other reason as to why they were so astonished at his early age. I think that that reason is, is because uh, he has always been perfect. Jesus has always been perfect. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So this means that 12 years old, Jesus was without sin. And because he has always been the Son of God and has always been without sin, he knows God better than anyone. At the age of 12, Jesus' heart, mind, soul, and strength were all on his heavenly Father. Now here I am, about 10 years almost into ministry. I've been reading my Bible every day for 10 years probably. Uh, I've been studying theology. I'm in seminary. I'm doing all these things to know the Lord better. But what's crazy to me is that I am, like me and my knowledge would be put to shame in front of a 12-year-old Jesus. There's not a man, woman, or child in here who would not get shown up by a 12-year-old Jesus. And so uh, there's, there's no sin to cloud his judgment. There's no distractions because where are his eyes always set? Not on the sinful... Not on the sinfulness of himself, they're always set on his heavenly Father. His purpose in life, as we see in his reply to Mary, was to be in the presence of God and to do his will. So what can we learn from 12-year-old Jesus? What can we apply into our own lives 
And I, I think one thing that we can apply into our lives is that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and that we should do the same and desire the same. At the age of 12, as Jesus is moving on into adulthood, Jesus pursued more. He wanted more of his heavenly father. He wanted more of wisdom. He wanted to love his neighbor more. And he was, uh, there, we, we should want to do the same. You see, there should never be a moment in your life where you are satisfied with the knowledge of God that you have. There should never be a moment where you feel like, God, I have loved you as much as I'm going to. There should always be a desire and a push for more. See, the way that we love God and love those around us should always be growing. We should always be searching for more ways to know the God who has redeemed us better. The way that we share the gospel should be what, what Lloyd-Jones, one of the greatest preachers of the past century, described as logic on fire. Understand that we do not emote people into the kingdom of God. We don't just simply say niceties about Christ and paint a pretty picture and win people to heaven. No, instead, what we do is we teach the truths of Scripture, and we don't add anything to them. We pursue a greater knowledge of Scripture so that we can speak forth the truths of Scripture. Lloyd-Jones says that the Bible holds us face-to-face -face with God and what God is and what God has done. See, if you want to pursue God faithfully, you must know who He is. If we want to share the gospel correctly, we need to continue growing in the wisdom of the Word of God. When Lloyd-Jones said that our preaching and teaching of the gospel should be logic on fire, he meant that we must personally hold the theological truths. See, it is not enough for you to know that mankind is sinful. You have to know that you are sinful, and that is why you need a Redeemer. We personalize to ourselves the truths that we proclaim. So have our lives been set on fire by the truths of the gospel? If it hasn't, we can look at 12-year-old Jesus, the perfect and sinless Son of God, and His pursuit of wisdom in the things of God as the inspiration to grow in our own uh, walk with Christ. Another thing that we can gather if we go back to verse 48 is that Jesus knew who He was. Or verse 49, I'm sorry. He, he replies to His mom. He says, Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? Now, at first glance, that might not seem like he's saying all that much, but uh, it says more than what you think. Um, Jewish men and women of yesteryear, and even today, you want to know what they never referred to God as? They never say, God is my Father. Now, they have no problem with the fatherhood of God, but they will always say, God is our Father. Now, keep in mind, Jesus, even at 12, he's not, he's not slipping up on words. He's not making little mistakes here and there. No, everything he says has a purpose. He's not saying anything off the details, or saying things off the cuff. Some might argue, well, he must have meant to say our father, because if he said my father, that is a very big statement for a 12-year-old to make. But we know that Jesus is a God of big statements. The gospel is a very big statement. See, he didn't grow into the knowledge of being the son of God. It wasn't like, you know, Spider-Man, where he got bitten by a radioactive spider, and then the next day, he's suddenly Spider-Man. Jesus did not get bitten by the Holy Spirit at the age of like five and then just become God at that point. He has always eternally been the Son of God, and he is eternally divine even as a child. He knew that he was the Son of God. So do we know who we are? Do you know what your place is in the universe? Do you know what your purpose is in this life? Do you know what you mean to be eternally happy? Do you know what it means to be redeemed by the sacrificial death of Christ. So hopefully you know who you are by now this year. But more than anything, hopefully you know the 12-year-old boy sitting at the feet of the teachers in Jerusalem. One last thing that's important to mention here. Um, 
Jesus Christ is always exactly where he is supposed to be and where he needs to be. Mary and Joseph were running around Jerusalem trying to find their son, but he was exactly where he was supposed to be. Who is the only people panicking in this story? It's Mary and Joseph. Jesus ain't in the busiest city of the Middle East freaking out that mom and dad aren't there. I remember being a kid, and I, I never, to my knowledge, got separated from my parents, but I do remember back in the day when we had these things called malls that were actually had people in them and stores that were open. Um, it was like the early 2000s. It's an okay time. Um, I remember my mom, maybe, I think maybe like three people had walked in front of us. And I started panicking because I thought, well, crud, they probably found another kid that's better than me. They're probably taking them home instead. Uh, you know, I started panicking because I don't know where I'm supposed to be. Even now pushing 30 is probably the same sort of thing with my parents where I probably get panicky if I don't know where they're at. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus isn't in Jerusalem putting up lost parent posters. Jesus knows where he needs to be. Mary and Joseph were scared, but Jesus knew that he must be in his father's house. Aren't we guilty of doing something similar? See, many of us have spent the last couple years uh, asking the question of, of God, where are you in all of this? God, where are you in this pandemic? God, where are you in this election? What is happening here? Where are you right now? And we've been just spending our lives wondering, God, where are you? And I know we've talked a lot about theology and we've gotten some deep answers, but the answer to this one is about as simple as it comes. God is exactly where he needs to be. So where is Jesus right now? Well, he's at the right hand of the Father. What does Paul say? He says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Right at now, at this very moment, Christ is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for all believers. That's why Satan can come and throw accusation after accusation, and God says, I only see the righteousness of my Son. Because that's what Christ is there doing. Christ is where he needs to be. Jesus himself said to his disciples that the very best place for him to be was at the right hand of his Father. Look at the Gospel of John in chapter 16. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. See, we never need to question where our Savior is because he's exactly where he is supposed to be for our greatest good. Where is the Holy Spirit right now? Well, the Holy Spirit's living inside of your heart if you're a follower of Christ. Where is Christ? He's at the right hand of the Father. Where is God the Father? He's seated on, he's seated on the throne. That's where they need to be. That's where the greatest possible goodness can happen. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 12 to 13, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. You see, Christ sits at the right hand of God because it guarantees to us that his work has been done. It guarantees to us that his sacrifice for our lives has been accepted by God the Father. Calvin said that if our faith looks for Christ sitting on the right hand of God and rests in that truth, then we are going to one day enjoy the full force of that victory. And we will be able to triumph in that complete victory over sin, death, and Satan. We cannot do that if Christ is not on the throne, if he is not where he is supposed to be. So here's the thing. I don't know what this year is going to have for us. 
I said in the first service, here's how we can kind of judge, judge this year. It's either going to be the worst year ever or it's going to be the best. Might be somewhere in between. Those are, the, those are the measures that we're working with there. I don't know what this year is going to hold. I don't know. Like, we might get like the 50th variant of this whole virus. Who knows? We don't know what's going to happen. As we go through this year, if doubts start creeping in, when anxieties arise, and they probably will, when worry starts coming, when we get diagnoses that we don't want, when sorrows come, we can remind ourselves of the truth that where Christ is, we too shall be. What is it that Jesus says? He says in John 14, 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, but that where I am, you may also be. Where's Christ? He's exactly where he needs to be. Well, what is he doing? He's working all things for glory, for his glory, and for the good of those that love him. You see, this year will probably be tough. Hopefully it'll be easy. It might be tough for a lot of us. But we can rejoice regardless because we know exactly where our Savior is. And we know that we will not cease striving for him to grow in wisdom, to grow in love, to grow in pursuit of him because there's nothing else to gain. There's nothing else to get. That is what we strive for until we see him face to face because we know with certainty that where he is, we too shall be. And so what I'm going to do is we're going to pray, and I'm going to struggle to put this battery back in my microphone while we do it. And uh, I'm going to pray that, like Jesus, we strive for something greater. We strive for something more, that we want to know our Heavenly Father better, that we want to love Him greater, and then we're going to worship together this great God that we serve. So let's pray. God, it is my prayer that every single one of us here does not become content with the love that they have for you, but instead continues to grow in wisdom and in nature and in love of you and in, in love of our, of our neighbors. I know that this year has a lot of potential, but it also might have a lot of worry. And so I pray that you would comfort us and remind us of the truth that you are exactly where you are supposed to be, Lord Jesus. You are exactly where you need to be for our greatest good and for your glory. So I pray that as we continue to worship you and as we leave here today, we are reminded that you are at the right hand of the Father and that the Father is on the throne and that that is a position that you will never give up. We love you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name. Amen.